Our guest tonight is an old friend. Sherwin B. Newland is a very well-established surgeon, but he's better known at Yale University Medical School, I should add, but he's far better known in the broad world as the author of a number of very significant books. They have high literary quality. Most of them deal with medicine, how we die, the wisdom of the body, the origins of anesthesia, uh, though one of them is, in fact, a study of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, and now, a new book, Lost in America, by far your most personal book. Without question, yes. And you start it with a... Uh, you start with a, with a startling revelation, namely that you, at the age of 41 or thereabouts, went into a significant depression and whose obsessional content weighted you so heavily that you had to go into, essentially, a psychiatric institution. I was actually, at that age, admitted for a period of 13 months to a very large, sprawling psychiatric institution in northern Connecticut, very close to the place where lobotomy had first been pioneered some many years before. That was in Hartford, I think, wasn't it? The Institute of Living in Hartford, yeah. Connecticut, yes. Yeah. And there was somebody where you were who was suggesting that the only way to resolve and to ameliorate your depressive burden was lobotomy. Well, that somebody was actually the entire senior staff of the institution, mm. people with a lot of experience with lobotomy over the years, who got together in a conference one day and said that the obsessional ideas of this man are so wrapping his brain in chains that we'll never get out of this unless we somehow cut the circuits and separate the circuits. You were already then a well-established surgeon. You were uh, beyond all of your training and some 10 years in surgical practice at Yale on the Yale Medical Faculty. Exactly. Didn't these doctors have some special concern for doing that procedure to a medical colleague? I often wondered whether that was the reason that they chose it, as a matter of fact. Oh. I don't mean to get back at me for being a surgeon when they were a psychiatrist, but because I had become, in that institution, a very well-known figure. I was a surgeon who, in Connecticut, had a certain reputation, and here they couldn't get through to me on any grounds. They tried certain medications, psychotherapy had been tried, nothing was changing. And I think that they were paying particular attention to me. Their particular attention was not what I would have liked them to have been paying, but they did. Lobotomized surgeon sounds like a uh, an oxymoron. Or, or the, <laughs> Some or, might not say so, Milt. An oxymoron. You know? <laughs> right. could, could, uh, could you have continued in a surgical career? Oh, without question, I could not have done no. anything like that. I think. Explain I what a lobotomy is for those who are listening. Well, we know or have known for some time that emotional states and certain thinking patterns occur in the frontal part of the brain, the frontal part of the cortex, so-called. And in those days, or prior to those days, because this was the end of those days, it was thought that separating that part of the brain from the rest would remove some of the emotional content of a person's thinking, so that repeated thought patterns would be broken, would be cut off. And that seemed to them the right thing to do. But of course, when one is lobotomized, what is left 
is a person essentially without emotion, without any sort of affective way of looking at the world or responding to the world. It took you a year or a year and a half and you got out of this mess. I got out of this and I owe this to the fact that the young resident who was on call that day that I was admitted, quite by the craziest coincidence, happened to be someone who was much smarter than I had ever dreamed he would be and recognized that my real problem was not the obsessional thinking but the depression that had given rise to it. And he said to them, you know, you lobotomize this fellow, you know what you're going to end up with. I think his real problem is depression and why don't we try electroshock therapy, which they did. And, of course, it took a total of 20 treatments. Of the first 10, there was not much change, but they persisted. They didn't want to at first. He dug in his heels. He was a young man well thought of in that place. He threatened to leave, to quit. And they said, okay, we'll humor him. And they did it, and that was what saved me. Your book is structured in a most interesting way. You start with that, what we've just been talking about, and then we go into your the history of your family, your own experience as a boy of immigrant parents living in the Bronx, living uh, on the edge of poverty uh, is the impression one has. Uh, and of course, Lost in America, the title of your book is subtitled A Journey with My Father. He is the essential figure of this book. And well, the essential figure, you are suggesting by giving us your own medical history at the very beginning, the essential figure in the breakdown that you suffered. Well, that's precisely it. You know, I don't plan anything ahead when I'm writing. I just sit down with a two-and-a-half Eberhard Faber pencil, and I start to write. I don't know where I'm going to start. I don't know what's going to happen. I wrote the prologue, which describes standing at my father's grave with my older son, as he has stood with me so often, and thinking back about all of the unresolved thoughts I've had about him over the years, my father over the years, and then I go immediately into this dreadful episode describing the depression, describing the obsessional thinking, describing the appearance of this resident who saved me, and then I start at age two and a half or three, something like this. And I realized after I'd gotten about halfway through the book that what I was doing was saying to the reader, look, the real primary reason why I became depressed in the way I did was that essentially I was becoming my father. This young man who was 27, this resident, told me many, many months later when he got to know me very well, he said, you know, when I saw you that first day, you were your father. You were hunched over, as you later described he was. You were essentially inarticulate, as you later described he was. You shuffled in your gait. It was as though you were imitating what he was. And so as it turned out, something in my unconscious mind was guiding the structure of this book so that a reader would come up with precisely what you said. You know, here's this man talking about his depression, and he flashes back to the beginning of his life. And the message he's giving us is that his relationship with his father is the key to knowing why he became depressed and why he behaved in his depression as he did. Your father is uh, a difficult man, even as one reads about him. One wants things to be better for him, but one shares your annoyance. And annoyance is probably a mild word. One shares your frustration and your anger. Uh, yet finally, 
and inevitably one feels a terrible uh, sorrow for a man who was so cut off from the possibility of a life that might flower and a life that might gratify. And the crucial element in that obviously is uh, his having come to this country from elsewhere um, and not being particularly well enough educated or enough or worldly enough to find his way. Thus the subtitle, or rather the title Lost in America is quite apt, even though, as you must know, it was used also for a comic movie about uh, 15 years ago. I have to confess that this is the first I've heard of that movie. Imagine such a thing that I wasn't aware that there was such a movie. I'll show it. I'll show you some really? material on it as we pause for a first round of commercials. And we return to Sherwin B. Newland, professor of surgery at Yale University Medical School, author of many books. How We Die, uh, his book of a few years ago, won the national. Um, What's the name of that prize? The National Book National Award. National Book Award, yeah. yeah. And you almost won the Pulitzer. Came about as close as you can come. <laughs> yeah. uh, How We Die, The Wisdom of the Body, The Origins of Anesthesia, Doctors, The Biography of Medicine, Medicine, The Art of Healing, The Mysteries Within, and Leonardo da Vinci. That's one I haven't seen. Oh, you should read it. Do you do sort of a medical yes. diagnosis at yes. a distance of yes. Leonardo? Yes. Leonardo, to everyone's surprise, except a few of us, mm -hmm. was primarily an anatomist in the last 15 yeah. years of his life. And he had become fascinated by anatomy as a way of studying the body for painting. But gradually come to the understanding of what he was really trying to figure out was what life is, what nature is, what the human body is. And I came to realize that in the last 15 or 20 years of his life, what he was doing was using his commissions from his paintings and other work to support his habit, and his habit was dissecting the human body. Back to the Bronx. Yes. Paint, in your own words, before we read something that I've asked you to read from the book, um, the world as it looked to little Sherwin Noodleman, living up on Mars Avenue, isn't it? Mars Avenue. In the Bronx, yeah. as you come to consciousness which would have been at the age of five or six, and then on the Well, end. you know, as you ask me that question, the first thing that comes to mind is how different we seem from everybody else. We lived in a neighborhood that was half Catholic, primarily Irish and Italian, and half Jewish. Our block was split right up the middle. Everybody in the southern side of the block was Catholic. Virtually everybody in the northern side of the Bronx. I, I lived on the same block in Bensonhurst in Brooklyn. The same kind of block. The same kind of block. I think those kinds of blocks must have been very, very common. Mm -hmm. Everybody's father was an immigrant, but my father was different. He never learned to read and write English, nor did my mother, but he spoke a language, an English, that he had essentially invented. It was half Yiddish, it was half the rhythms, the accents of the Italian garment workers with whom he worked in the garment industry in New York City. I tried to imitate it on the page as well as I could, but there's no way to really imitate that. He never understood this country. You know, in, in Yiddish, there are two words for lost. One is verloren, which means just lost, and one is farblunget, which Blunged. means not just lost, but confused and puzzled and mixed up. That's the kind of lost my father was in America. He never understood this country. And even the immigrants that I knew, the parents of my friends, 
had learned to read and write English, had gone to night school, had some sense of what this nation was all about. Not my father, not Meyer. You lived in an apartment. As you, what you, you start in one place, then you wind up in another apartment where you spent all the rest of your youth on through college years before you went off to Yale uh, for medical school. It sounds absolutely claustrophobic as you describe it. It was more claustrophobic than I thought because I went back to visit it last May and rang the did doorbell. Yes, I did. And Mrs. Valdez let me in and I stood in those rooms and realized they were about half the size I had thought they were. It was four small rooms. There were seven of us living in those four rooms. I shared a bedroom with my aunt and my grandmother and for some years all three of us slept in a single bed, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, y'all, during my high school years. You loved your grandmother, um, and she was a, a matriarchal figure of considerable uh, apparent significance, at least in your eyes. My grandmother was a woman who was truly a matriarch. She had had seven children. Uh, she outlived all but one of them. Yeah. In the teens of the 20th century when she'd been in this country about 10 years she bought a farm in eastern Connecticut these things were possible because uh, certain Jewish philanthropists Baron de Hirsch was one Jacob Schiff was another would buy huge tracts of land sell them to people who lived on the Lower East Side for small amounts of money just to get them out of the city and she ran this farm for oh some ten or a dozen years completely by herself a four-foot ten-inch powerhouse of a woman always would get someone to work for her she never farm. learned English as I remember couldn't speak a word of English till the day she died yeah and so we spoke Yiddish in the house and uh, my first language was Yiddish when I started school at the age of five PS 33 in the Bronx there were certain words I didn't know and uh, there from there comes my fascination with the English language English was my escape English was the way out it was it was the liberating influence and so I've had this love affair with the English language all of my life I was going to say to you Lomishan red in Yiddish but red in Yiddish has the willst but that wouldn't uh, communicate too well to all but a small portion of our listeners I think not <clears throat> there are many people of Jewish background listening but Yiddish is a if it isn't a dying language elsewhere in the world it's pretty much moribund in the United States well Isaac Bashev a singer used to say Yiddish has been dying for 500 years yeah. I suspect yeah. it'll be dying for another 500 years let's get an image of your father who is the central figure in this book I uh, most I indicated a passage I think would uh, give a good uh, portrait for just a moment This passage that you've chosen tells very much the way I saw him all of my life. It is almost too painful to think about this self-recrimination I have borne since middle age, about never having taken my father seriously. From very early in childhood, I had seen him as inept, unworldly, and ill-informed about everything. Volcanic in temper and terrifying in his autocratic control, he had always seemed to me to maintain his authority by the explosive force of his unpredictable and predictable anger, rather than through any wisdom he possessed or respect he had earned. This was the intuitive sense I had about him, even as a child too young to put form, thought, or words to it. 
Daddy's opinions and suggestions were not worthy of consideration because I was certain that he did not understand how the world works. What was the evidence that he had no real clues about how the world worked? Well, these were tempestuous times. These were the middle to late 30s. These were the war years. His opinions about politics were childish and naive. His opinions about people were childish and naive. The only thing he seemed to understand at all was the labor movement, the international ladies' garment worker. And he was a garment worker all of his life. He worked, you know, there's a hierarchy of jobs in the dressmaking industry. The cutter is the highest, mm -hmm. and the so-called operator is the lowest. He's That's the person, the person on the sewing machine. On the sewing machine who puts the dress together after the people who have skills have created the various parts of the dress. And that's what Meyer was, and not only that, but he worked, as all of those people did, in so-called piecework. Pizvik, as he called it, and he wasn't very good because he had a neurological disease that kept him from being able to control his hands as well as he might, so his income was never very good. You, as you are aware of him, even in childhood, there's a quality of tremor to his movements and a kind of, to use uh, a quasi-medical jargon, a motoric disability of some kind. Well, there was an uncertainty. He had, because of the disease, he had lost this straightforward understanding that each of us has about where one's legs and arms are. We walk without thinking about it because we know where our feet are without putting a single thought to it. He didn't, couldn't do that. He had to look at his feet. He had to look at his hands to know where they were. The medical term for that, of course, is proprioception. He yeah. did not have the proprioceptive sense. That was the product you of the disease. You say because of the disease, but we only learned towards the end of the book what that disease was, and I won't give it away now, but okay. <laughs> we may or may not give it away depending upon what you choose to do. But you only discover the nature of his disease when you are a medical student. I was a first-year medical student, and I was sitting alone in my dormitory on a cold November night. They did everything they could to keep those dormitories from getting too warm to save fuel. And I was reading my physiology textbook, the textbook in which one studies the function of the body. And I came across a description of everything I knew about my father, and I realized at that point that I knew what his disease was only by looking at it at the textbook. And I phoned my cousin Willie, my cousin Willie, who had gone off to medical school in Switzerland in the 1930s at a time when it was very, very, very difficult for Jewish boys, certainly Eastern European Jewish boys, to get into medical schools, had come back and made this diagnosis when he was an intern and returning to the United States. He told me that my father had never known what the disease was, and my father died not knowing and no one knew until I decided to write this book as a matter of fact. Well I guess we better give it away. I guess we better give it away but perhaps I can tell you what happened. I was reading this textbook, it was late at night, I was a little bored and I realized I was reading about my father, the kinds of pains that he had, the inability to control his movements and it was startling so I looked back at the chapter title, at the uh, paragraph title, I should say, and it said Tabes Dorsalis, and Tabes Dorsalis meant nothing to me. You know, I've been reading so fast and so bored, I just hadn't noticed the headings of these paragraphs, so I went back to the very beginning, and the very first sentence was, the essential lesion in this syphilitic da-da-da, and there I knew it.
that here this Orthodox Jewish man had somehow acquired syphilis. And what we were dealing with was the late stages of so-called tertiary late-stage syphilis, yes. As I remember it in tertiary syphilis, another uh, pattern of symptoms that emerges is what is one sometimes called paresis, isn't that right? Yes. There, there that's are, and that's mental. Exactly. There are three basic major patterns. One is so-called general paresis. It used to be called general paresis of the insane, which is a psychosis, a, a yeah. real severe mental disease. <laughs> One manifests itself in changes in the major blood vessels of the body, blowout patches, so-called aneurysms that burst. That tends to be more common in people of color. White people, Caucasian people, tend to have either tabies, which is a spinal cord problem, which my father had, or general paresis of the insane. There's no evidence that I was ever able to put together that he had general paresis. Everything seems to have been focused on the tabies. But he had a kind of emotional intensity uh, clouded uh, and bursting forth with tremendous rage. He was an amazingly volatile, I could almost say mercurial man. One could never predict these rages. And of course, it took me so long to understand that. And they were denunciatory, often directed oh, as, yes. as, at your mother and at you and your brother. Exactly. They were denunciatory, they were demeaning, they were degrading, <laughs> they were humiliating, as though. I will bring you down to the level at which I feel myself to be. Of course, uh, who understood that at that age? It was many years later that I finally figured out what the meaning of this was. But when you were at the other end of one of his tirades, you came away feeling completely diminished and demeaned, yes. A word came to me somehow in the middle of the book as you're talking about one of your father's rages. It just came directly to mind, and you will see why instantly, Caliban. Oh God, yeah. How does that strike you? Well, I think, I think it's it's appropriate. Uh, he, even the foreignness, even the foreignness. You know, here we were in the family. We were all blonde or had been blonde. We all had blue eyes. We all had, in spite of good reason to feel otherwise, a certain optimism about life. And there was my father with his very, very dark hair, almost black, and his very dark brown eyes with that thin tear layer that always made him look as though he was sad, unhappy. He didn't speak to other members of the family except the kids. Yes, he was an outlander. Even the color is appropriate. But I think of Caliban as well, because Caliban is full of rage yeah. over about a world into which he's been drawn uh, and which overwhelms and yeah, totally confounds him. There it is. Yeah, it just doesn't understand it. And and this is my father. And in addition to that, not just doesn't understand it, but feels lesser than anyone yeah. else in the world. We've said nothing yet about the woman of greatest importance in your life, in your youth, your mother, yeah. who was a very dear mother, obviously. Well, I suppose every boy who has ever lived on the face of the earth really believes that his mother lives only for him and her real function. No, and, not all mothers do. <laughs> well, Many so, mothers don't. But somehow children seem to think... If they possibly can, feel, they will think Yes, so. if, they, if there's any reason they can think that, right. they will think, even if they've been abused by their mothers. Well, 
it's very interesting to me that in the decades after she died, relatives who knew her well told me that she was angelic, that she really was the way I saw her. To me, she was the be-all and end-all of my life. I adored her. The greatest happiness was just to be alone with her, with no one near. And of course, in the last years of her life, she was devastated by a rather advanced cancer of the intestine, which was picked up quite late, cancer of the colon. And she died a week after my 11th birthday. How did she and your father come together? <laughs> what actually? You, you don't make that... Yeah, what I actually, well, I think it was a common immigrant story. Here was my father working in, in a shop somewhere, mm -hmm. and in another shop was working his uncle, his uncle Shoyle. His uncle Shoyle, at the next machine, was this lovely young woman, Vicha Lutsky, and he thought she, she would be great to meet my nephew, Meyer. So he arranged for them to meet. They were about the same age, and they married. It's interesting that he had no contact whatsoever with his family of origin. Uh, they were ultimately yes. wiped out, almost all of them, exactly. in the Holocaust. But in the years before that, he had no communication with them at all. Why was that? I had always suspected and continued to suspect that he left the little town in Russia where he was born after a very considerable fight, argument, whatever it was, mm -hmm. with his father. He never wrote to any of them. They never wrote to him. At one point, many years later, when I was in my teens, his brother wrote to him from Argentina, where he had moved. <clears throat> the one surviving brother. The one surviving brother, his brother Avram, and he never answered that letter. I referred to him in the book as a man without a past. We knew nothing about his family. Um, some commercials are due, they're somewhat overdue. It would be good, I think, to talk about the Yiddish world of that time and that place. Well, it was a very interesting Yiddish world. You have to remember that a lot of these people had been to night school. A lot of these people were involved in the labor movement mm -hmm. in New York. A lot of these people were fascinated by America, read as much as they could, went to the opera as much as they could. And you know, virtually all of the great classics were translated into Yiddish. And the kids, like you and like me, went to after-school Jewish school. We, you no. and I both went to the same one, the really? Alpha-Jerinkshule. Exactly. We, well, we'll talk more about that in related really matters after we pause for these words. Our guest is Dr. Sherwin B. Newland of um, the Yale University Medical School, an eminent surgeon and an eminent American author. Uh, you haven't yet tried fiction, but you've done a great deal else. That's right. I imagine you've got a novel in the drawer. I do. I, I wrote two-thirds of a novel. It was so dreadful oh, yes. that I didn't dare show it to anyone. Well, this memoir, Lost in America, A Journey with My Father, is um, beautiful and very evocative, and I think it's a significant uh, American literary work, which will last for quite a long time. I should have added it's published by Alfred A. Knopf and Company. Um, I have to ask you to talk about the Yiddish world of that time in New York, because this book breathes that atmosphere and that culture? Well, a lot of it had to do with the labor movement. Mm -hmm. A lot of these Jewish immigrants, Italian immigrants too, but mostly Jewish immigrants, were heavily involved with the labor movement. They were deeply invested in the success 
of the labor movement. I well remember I was helping my Aunt Rose with her citizenship examination. She had this little booklet with all this information that she had to memorize for the examination. And I said to her as one of the questions, who was the president of the Confederacy? She said, Jefferson Davis. And I said, who was the president of the Union? She said, David Dubinsky, who else? <laughs> because he was the president of the International Ladies' Garment right. Workers. Right. It was actually a vital and vibrant group of people. They were interested in opera. They were interested in literature. You know, we had Mark Twain. We had Shakespeare. We had many British and American authors translated into Yiddish in that bookcase that sat yes. in our living room. And on 2nd Avenue, there were... Um, a famous production. There was a famous production of King Lear in Yiddish. Absolutely. Uh, the, the great Maurice Schwartz, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact, did Lear. The great actor Boris, uh, Boris Tomaszewski, whose grandson, uh, of course, is uh, Michael Tilson, Michael Tilson Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. yeah. Great theatrical families, the Adler family, mm -hmm. which still exists, of course, in theater. But there was a level of poverty and a level of confusion and wandering on the darkling plain, which was true of some of the Jews of that immigrant generation. And your father is of that category. Yeah, I think there was an ultimate pessimism that overrode everything. Yeah. They had had very bad experiences in Russia or Poland or Hungary, wherever they, some of them came from, most of them from Russia. The Holocaust before the Holocaust, so to speak. There was always the threat of the pogrom. Sure. Uh, I was brought up, actually taught, that anybody who is not Jewish is in is imminent danger to you at all times. And I talk about it in the book. I talk, actually, of certain experiences that I had as a small boy that seemed to verify what my grandmother was telling me. But your mother had far more optimism and far more strength than did your father. She was, in a way, the... Uh, the sustaining force in that. Well, the, your grandmother, the Bubula, and your mother were the sustaining forces. Exactly. It was a matriarchal family in That's every it, possible yeah. way. And to this day, at the <laughs> at my advanced age, I listen very carefully to what the women in my life tell me, whether they're my wife or my daughters. I somehow assume that women have better judgment than men, that women understand the day-to-day -day life and our relationship with each other better than men. Now, whether that comes from the reality of, of truth or whether it comes from having been brought up in this matriarchal group. There's one thing know. that the immigrant Jews were famous for. They're not the only group that uh, had this orientation, but was very important in the life of those people, and that was a tremendous investment in the future of their children. Oh, there's no question about it. The way I put it in the book, in Lost in America, is they lived their life in the service mm -hmm. of a dream. And the dream was that their children would become American. And not only American, but they would become American leaders. That's a very interesting notion. My grandmother would always say to me, when you grow up, she would say this in Yiddish, of course, you will become a public speaker. People will listen to you. People will think of you as a person of authority. That was her fondest wish. And, of course, it was true. She was right. Too. Well, it seems to have worked out that way, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book, as a matter of fact. I reached the point, there are a number of reasons, clearly, why I wrote it, as any author who writes a book has multiple reasons. But, you know, I do an awful lot of writing on medical topics, on ethics and history, and, and I write for a number 
of literary journals, uh, including newspapers, and people listen and they write in. I was just reaching the point where I couldn't bear to be thought of as being someone who had the world all figured out. That I really felt, for me, it was necessary that people knew where I had come from and what I had been through. Well, if I can say something slightly interpretive, but I think you've given me all the material, and you're, you're there saying it yourself, you carried a deep burden in your life. Um, and it had something to do with your breakdown uh, as it occurred early. And that deep burden was uh, that you felt towards your father uh, shame and even, at worst, hate. And at the same time, you felt bound to him and I, intimidated by yes. him. It's a terribly complex uh, nexus of... I'll add another word. Yeah. When you feel terrible shame about your father or your mother, what comes with that is the guilt for feeling shame. Sure. So add all of the factors that you've so appropriately pointed out and add to it the constant burden of guilt. Right that I felt this way about them and that I wanted to get away from them and even the feelings that if they were dead, if they were all gone, what a wonderful, free, liberated American life I could lead. Do you remember actually having that thought? Without question. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. When, when my father would go into the hospital as a consequence of some complication of this spinal cord disease, Something in me said, gee, maybe he won't come out this time, and I will be free of this mm -hmm. shame, and free, therefore, of the guilt of the shame. <clears throat> what was the, the nature of the shame? What was there to be ashamed of? You know, he spoke English in a very broken way, obviously. He was rather unworldly. He, he shuffled He shuffled when he walked. Yeah. He seemed to be from another world, and all I wanted to be was of this world. You know, if you saw me during the height of my career, you would see me always wearing a shirt and a starch collar and a coat and a, and a suit. I was the most perfect square surgeon that ever lived. I was the antithesis of Meyer Noodleman. In fact, the way I put it in the book is I wanted to be the un-him. I wanted to be everything he was not. Remember when some senior nurse saying to me, you always look like you just stepped out of a bandbox. And it was as though I was saying, I don't want to be in any way identified with this shuffling, ill-dressed, mm. unkempt man. Let me take that one step further. Did you not want to be identified with him, or did you not want to be identified as a Jew? Oh, I think both of those are factors. There, Mr. Freud, Dr. Freud, who's being banged over the head so badly these days, pointed not out... Not undeservedly. Uh, one might debate that, but in any event, here we are. Uh, pointed out that one sense of one's religion or one sense of belonging to a particular ethnic group is largely one sense of being one's father's son or daughter. And, you know, one doesn't have to be a psychoanalytically oriented person to believe that. And so my feeling about my father was wrapped up so much in my feeling about being Jewish. And also it was a very different time. My own children now, raging in age from 18 to 41, don't understand when I try to describe to them what it was like to apply to a medical school, for example, and know 
that there was a specific quota, and there was at Yale in those days, or not applied to certain schools because they would never take an Eastern European Jew. So the atmosphere on the one hand was real. There was a great deal of ethnic bigotry against Jews. And there was also this sense of shame, which somehow I identified with my father, yes. A crucial fact of your life, and indeed it's visible on the very title page of your book, is that though your father was Meyer Nudelman, you are Sherwin B. Newland. Precisely. N-U-L-A-N-D. It was very important for me to let everybody know that I really started life as Sherwin B. Noodleman. Now, that's a pretty ridiculous name. Imagine getting up in seventh grade and every semester thereafter taking French and having to say at the beginning of class, Je m'appelle Sherwin Noodleman. You know, we had some kids with some pretty silly names, but to me, that was the silliest name of all. So there was that factor in wanting to change it. There was the factor that... As a senior in high school, I had decided I wanted to apply eventually to medical school. And there was also the factor that every other Noodleman had changed his or her name at that point. And my father, my brother, and I were the only remaining Noodlemans of our group. So there were all of these things coming together. But certainly, I wouldn't even attempt to deny that hiding my Jewishness was indeed a factor. In it's curious. Um, you and your brother, uh, your brother Harvey decided to change your name, and your father wanted to change, to make the same name change. He wanted to be a Newland also, and you wouldn't let him. We were escaping from him. That name change epitomized our getting away from Meyer Noodleman, and yeah. he was so intent on joining us, and we said, no, don't do that. Who? You're not a Newland, you're a Noodleman. And we convinced him not to do that. It was the ultimate symbol. If there was persisting guilt, and guilt even after his death, or maybe even augmented by his death, the guilt would have involved that incident as well, I should think. I think that was a major incident in building up this huge burden of guilt. But I, but what you said a moment ago is, is right on the money, this guilt that continued after his death, yes. Is it finally being expiated only by the writing of this book, do you think? Well, you know, I undertook this book because the only way I really understand anything is by writing about it. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds strange, but other writers would understand. You would understand that you sit down in a small room and you're really in a state of altered consciousness and things go through you that aren't necessarily conscious at all and then they appear on a page and you say, my God, that's right, that makes sense because whether you're a Greek and you call it the muse or whether you're a modern man and call it the unconscious, it is enabled to come out and make some form. And I knew that was going to happen if I wrote this book. So this was not just a journey with my father, as the subtitle says, but a journey for my father. Actually, a notion that I hadn't even thought about till this instant as we're discussing it. It was a journey looking for my father and looking for what were my real feelings about my father. And it helped, yes. What are your real feelings about your father now, after all of this... Um, catharsis. He couldn't help it. He couldn't help it. As a child, as an adolescent, I blamed him. Uh, even after knowing that he had this crippling disease with that awful name, mm -hmm. I still kept thinking he should have been able to change 
but everything seemed to militate against him. Granted, he had this emotional inertia and he couldn't do anything for himself. Granted, he was a man who built up animosities and, and persisted in certain angry feelings, but nevertheless, it was as though the psychological fates and the physical fates with his disease were conspiring against him. He did as well as he could with what he had. All I could see was the failed result. So, you know, people have said to me, do you forgive your father now? I don't know what forgive means. I don't even know what hate means. Those are abstract words to me. All I know is what most of us really want in life is to be understood. I want you to understand what I really am. I understand now what my father really was. I think in the writing of this book, in the way you are also communicating to your father, if I can be rather fanciful, asking his forgiveness. Yeah, isn't that an interesting idea? Yes, yes. Yeah, asking his forgiveness for the shame that I felt, asking his forgiveness for some of the really awful things I did to him as, a, as an adolescent in, in, in revolting against his powerful rule in being so ashamed of him that it had to have been obvious to him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I hope I get a tape of this broadcast so that I can listen to it and remind myself <laughs> you will be handed of this as, moment. <laughs> you'll be handed one as you leave the studio. We do that routinely. Um, in fact, speaking of routine, it's uh, time to pause for some commercials. We'll do that. And then directly back to Sherwin B. Newland, the book we're drawing from, but it is so moving and so uh, uh, so uh, darkly toned and yet in some ways so humanely informed a volume that we can't possibly do full justice to it as we talk around it. It is Lost in America, A Journey with My Father, published by Alfred A. Knopf. And we return after this. How does one explain, to just pursue this uh, biographically a bit more, how does one explain your transformation from that ghetto kid, because that's what you were, uh, into an aspirant to a medical degree and then an aspirant to a high level of practice. You wanted to be one of the top surgeons and you made it at Yale. They kept you there for the full five years, whereas most are given their walking papers after a year or two of the, of the residency. Um, and then beyond that, your literary aspiration and your high literary achievement. How did all of this come from that boy on uh, on Mars Avenue. Well, it's interesting that you use the word transformation, which implies a rather rapid change over a relatively mm -hmm. short period of time. I think of it as the arc of a life. I think of it as a young man who was deeply curious about everything, especially about history and the English language, who every course he took in college felt like a whole new world had opened up to him. And it was the curiosity that created this great open territory for him to walk into. And I worked hard, and I was ambitious, and it never occurred to me, it's very strange, in the midst of all this pessimism in the family, it never yeah. occurred to me that I couldn't achieve everything I wanted to. And so I just went ahead and did it without thinking much about it. This is what you do today. And lo and behold, tomorrow comes, and, oh my God, look what I did yesterday, that sort of thing. And I think it must be a fairly common story among immigrant children, whether they come from 
East Asia or Southern Europe, or they come from originally from a shtetl in, yeah. in the Ukraine. You speak of the arc of a life. I caught a resonance to Dante in your last chapter. Del mezzo del cammino de nostra vita, etc. In the middle of the journey of our of my life, I found myself in a dark, strange forest. That was no accident. Uh, I think that's a line, of course, that has been quoted by many people who in their mid-years have found themselves in a very, very difficult situation. So that's a uh, reference as much to your uh, psychiatric trouble as anything else. It's a reference to my psychiatric trouble, but it's, it's also a statement, as it was for Dante, mm. that I will transcend this, yeah. that I will be out of this, and that I will learn from this, yes. That's why I chose that particular phrase from Dante. What determines the arc of a life? They're not really predictable, are they? Take, for example, you and your brother Harvey. Same kids. He's a few years older than you, isn't mm -hmm. he? Uh, same setting. Uh, he went in a very different direction. He went in a very different direction. Uh, who knows what the reasons were, uh, how much of it was genetic, how much of it was, well, three and a half years had gone by between the time I was born and he was born, and it was a different world. Our parents were different, but of course Harvey had this terrible, terrible foul ball thrown in his direction. That's not a very good analogy, I guess, but something awful happened to him at age 14 when he got rheumatic fever and was put to bed for six weeks, came out much heavier in weight than he had been before. Your grandmother believed that she had a stuffing tremendously oh, to help him recover. She was a Yiddish grandmother. She filled him with uh, all kinds of stuff, including this magnificent drink called a gogol mogul, which was made out of milk and honey and cream and who knows what else. And a raw egg. And a raw egg, right. Yeah. And so he came out of that experience overweight, uh, told by his cardiologist, we, there was a cardiologist who came to see him in consultation that he must never do any physical activity, and a very active, very interesting young man just became a boring slug, and that's the way he stayed for a couple of decades till his early 30s when he found a career that he loved, found a woman that he loved, and his life was turned around. Actually, he succeeded in the in the third of the Jewish professions. Exactly. First is a doctor, the second is a lawyer, the third is an accountant. A doctor, a lawyer, and an accountant. Are he you, was an accountant. Yeah, are you a doctor, doctor, or are you a doctor, a dentist? Yeah, right, he was an accountant. <laughs> we used to call that Jewish engineering, accountancy, yes. What's the Jewish national drink that begins with the letter H? Jewish national drink that begins with the letter H. You got me. Hamolted. Hamolted. <laughs> the joke from my from my childhood. Well, we used to sing a song about malted. It's macha malted, macha malted, macha malted, Jenny dear, mach vanilla, macha schneller. Make it quicker. Yeah. Macha malted, Jenny dear. We're off on a strange side note, but do you remember on the air on the Jewish radio stations in New York, Hormel's malted milk is good for kleiner Kinder? Hormel's malted milk is good for dear and meal. Well, I, you know, I can still sing the Barbasol commercial in Yiddish uh, that Seymour Rechtzeit, who only died last year, used to sing. Yeah. Surely I am bound to ask you to do so. Certainly. Barbasol, Barbasol, Medovkin, Broshkin, Lederanein, Shevzach, Vifunzich, Alein, Barbasol, You know, you don't need brush, you don't need yeah. a lather. You know, so many of these Yiddish words were really English words. 
pronounced with a Yiddish accent. Even my grandmother referred to that thing that you pull down so that the neighbors can look in your window as a vintischoit. Mm-hmm. So there we are. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about your literary career. When did you do the first book, and what, what brought you to it? Well, I had been writing essays about certain major medical historical figures, and I gave a lecture at Columbia once, and a man from the Princeton Press asked me if I wanted to write a book about it. And I was in the midst of a very busy, active surgical career, and I thought, if I'm going to write a book, I'm not going to write it for a university press, because I have to take time off. I should really have some income from this to make up for the income I would lose by taking the time. So I actually approached the Alfred A. Knopf Company, whose president at that time was married to the wife of a was married to a friend of my own wife, I should say. And he said, well, uh, I don't know if you can really write a book, so uh, why don't you just wait and see what happens. After I had about 13 or 14 essays, I sent him the essays. And he said, well, let's write a book. And that was my first one, which was Doctors, a medical history book for the general public. And it astonished all of us by being named uh, as an alternate selection of the Book of the Month Club. In those days, they would have one selection a month and an mm-hmm. alternate, selling a large number of copies. So after that, I, I wrote an essay. At his, He went on to become the editor of The New Yorker and asked me to write a... Well, that would be Gottlieb. Bob Gottlieb. Sure. He, he uh, asked me to write an article about heart transplantation for mm-hmm. them, which I did. And what I didn't know was that every person publishing in New York City read The New Yorker, and everybody was familiar with this article. Probably the first article in The New Yorker that had foul language in it. Of course, now foul language is every day, every week, I should say. But that got me known among publishers, so from there on in, uh, the carte blanche was there. But you you maintained your active career. Oh, yes. I maintained my active career until I decided to take a year's leave of absence to write How We Die. I felt a book with so much emotional content should not be written while I was trying to take care of very sick people, as many of my surgical patients were. So I took a year's leave of absence. Now, I had been a surgeon for 30 years at that point and loved it. It was just the greatest way to live my life. But yet, after 30 years, I thought after two and a half hours, the first morning of writing, It was like the sun had suddenly started to shine. The phone had rung a few times, and it wasn't for me. And I could, in the afternoon, go to a movie if I wanted to or do whatever. So I said to my wife, you know, this is a nice life. We should consider this. So we did for the rest of the year. And at month number nine, we finally decided no more clinical work. I'll teach ethics, which I had gotten very interested in at that point and done some work in, and teach medical history, which, of course, I'd always been interested in. But you've not picked up the scalpel again? No, I haven't. uh, uh, Well, I was in the operating room two years ago. We did a TV documentary based on one of my books, and I Mm -hmm. set foot in the operating room, in my own operating room. We did it in in room number six at the Yale New Haven Hospital, and suddenly all of the happiness came back, the joy that I had had all of those years of my career. What part of the body did you poke into? 
Were well, you a general surgeon or did you do mostly cardiac surgery? Well, that's very funny you should put it that way because when I first met my wife, she said to me, are you a specialist or only a general surgeon? Mm -hmm. So when she went off to work in Chicago, as a matter of fact, at the Goodman Theater, and I was writing her letters, I would sign them, Sherwin B. Newland, MD, F-A-C-S, O-A-G-S, only a general surgeon. <laughs> and when I wrote uh, that first book, I dedicated to her and signed it O-A-G-S. So I did... I was trained to do everything in those days, cardiac surgery, chest surgery, but we delineated our privileges as the years went by. And what I did was abdominal and breast surgery. Two-thirds of my work was abdominal surgery. A third of it was breast surgery. How does uh, an experienced physician, particularly a surgeon who is often called upon to do heroic interventions, um, how does he face the fact of people dying? You did the book about how we die. How do we... Um, react to our patients dying? There are so many different ways and there are so many different surgeons and there are so many different patients. Any physician who tells you that he responds to the death of every patient in a particular way is fooling himself or fooling herself. We develop attachments to patients based on so many factors. One of them has to do with how long we have treated them. One of them has to do frankly, with how we identify with them. There's no question that doctors, and this is a difficult thing to admit, but we have to admit this, are more likely to identify with people who come from the same socioeconomic or educational group that they do. On the other hand, you know, one can identify with people from a completely different ethnic group if there's just something about that person that uniquely strikes one. It's easier to develop a protection when one doesn't identify with patients. But you know, when I was in medical school, I was taught whatever you do, you must never become emotionally involved with your patients' difficulties. And I tried to do that for some years, and I began to realize, and now I can tell you after a long career, some of the most rewarding days of my life have been when I have allowed myself completely to become involved emotionally with patients even though they might die or suffer tragic consequences of illness. Of course, doing the kind of work that you did, uh, you often do face death of a patient, don't you? Of course. So many of my patients had malignant diseases yeah. recognizable as eventually being lethal the very first day you meet those people. Do you, do you look forward to, of course, you've been working on medical ethics, among other things, do you look forward to the time when the prediction will come true, if it's a correct prediction, that we will extend average longevity over the, the centenarian line? Oh, I hope not. You uh, hope not? Oh, no, absolutely. There, you know, there's, there's longevity and there's life expectancy. I think the goal of medicine, this is something I've thought about, a great deal mm -hmm. about and written about, as, as you may know. The goal of medicine is to bring us as close as we can come to the life expectancy that nature has given us. Each species has a particular life expectancy. For us, the maximum life expectancy, humans, is probably close to 120 years. And I, I look forward to a time when we can live in good health, reasonably good health, for at least 110 of those years. Mm -hmm. And that should be our goal, to increase it. 250 by genetic manipulation or 200 or whatever people are talking about 
to me is a travesty and it's a violation, and I'll say this in the most general way, of the laws of nature. Yeah, but but still, to reach 110 as an average age would be a consummation uh, never really anticipated, if not devoutly to be wished. Can we get there from here? Oh, I think we can get there, but the important thing is not how much we, uh, how long we live, but the notion that the geriatricians, gerontologists, the researchers mm. in old age are working on, which is what they call compression of morbidity. Most of us nowadays go through a long, long period of decline, as much as 10 years as we fade and become senile and our joints are giving out. The, the uh, goal of modern gerontology is to compress this period of sickness so that we go along, as Oliver Wendell Holmes would call it, like a one-horse shay. We just sort of fall apart at some point. Yeah, a couple of months of fading, essentially. How do you arrange for that to be the, the, the ending of it all? Well, we're getting there. You know, we now have uh, very good uh, drugs against osteoporosis. We know about certain kinds of physical activity that decrease the amount of osteoporosis, uh, osteoarthritis. That's joint disease of older people. We're beginning to learn, and we've although we've known it for five or six years, that increasing mental activity is, of course, a way of slowing down the process of senility. It may even be a way of not preventing but decreasing the frequency of Alzheimer's disease. So we are beginning to learn what we can do to keep ourselves. The slogan is use it or lose it. Well, I think it's absolutely right. It's true of the brain. I think it's true of most of the rest of the body, too. It's one of the reasons I go rushing off to the gym three times a week. I have to rush to commercials uh, on schedule, more or less. But first, it is time as well to invite telephone calls. We've just magically opened the lines. The number 591-7200. For anything you'd like to ask, uh, in relation to the book that we've been drawing from tonight, Lost in America, a Journey with My Father by Sherwin B. Newland, or for that matter, more broadly, about uh, the medical life and about medical issues, including the ethical issues which have been opened up in recent years. Cloning, of course, is one of the great areas. Um, my friend Leon Cass from the University of Chicago uh, is much involved in the ethical examination of, uh, in general, the new biological frontiers, uh, for, uh, and particularly as relating to cloning. 5917200 is our number. The lines are open. We await your calls. Also, if you're listening on the internet and would rather reach us via email, the email address is extension720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 as one word at tribune, T R I B U N E dot com, or 5917200. You don't have to be a doctor to be in touch with us, but I wouldn't mind at all if some other uh, members of the medical profession. Uh, called in to share some of their thoughts about uh, medical practice and about medical training and about what the practice of medicine does uh, in the organization, the reorganization of your own sensibilities. We will pause and hope to be on to your calls and emails right after this. And we go directly back to our very special guest of the evening, Sherwin B. Newland. We've been drawing from his book, Lost in America, A Journey with My Father. That is published by Alfred A. Knopf and Company. The phone number 5917200. If you're trying to reach us at the moment, you are uh, hitting a busy signal, but do continue to try and certainly call again right after we say goodnight to some prior caller. And here's the first of the callers who will in a while be prior. Good evening, you're on the air. Yes, 
um, I was much interested in the comment that he just made about how doctors inevitably identify with some patients more than others. And given what we have increasingly come to understand today about holistic medicine and about emotional factors affecting the healing process, uh, how much does a doctor's identification with a patient affect the likelihood of the patient getting well or the speed of recovery? Well, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? The question is whether identifying with a patient on the part of the doctor is valuable to the patient or detrimental to the patient. You know, we've all learned from uh, very bad experiences that each of us has had that the more one identifies, the less one is likely to be completely objective and distanced from the problem that one is grappling with. So there's really no answer to that question. On the one hand, one might think, well, if I identify with a patient, I'm going to give him the very best care of which I'm capable. And on the other hand, one might say, in identifying with him, I am losing the distancing that is so important to my making appropriate scientific decisions. We thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Glad to have heard from you. There are now one or two lines available. If you've been trying to reach us, do try again. 5917200 and you are on the air good evening hello um dr newland i'm an attorney and in 1996 i received 20 uh, ect treatments for depression and uh, i understand that that you also um, received ect for depression i was wondering in at in your uh at your time if it was uh um the treatments were different then than they are now well, that's a very interesting question. I actually, uh, when I started to write this book, or about a year before, I should say, went to see the most modern kind of ECT that's available. Turns out it's exactly the same as it was in the early 70s when I got mine. You know, they, in the old days when I was a student, there were real convulsions, and it was thought that convulsions were necessary as the electric current went through the brain and stimulated all of the muscles to contract. Turns out that's not necessary. All you need is the convulsive pattern uh, in the brain waves, in the electroencephalogram. So the people are given uh, medications to prevent them from having a formal epileptic type convulsion. So that hasn't changed very much since 73. It's really a remarkably benign process to observe. Is there any good working theory or theoretical model as to how electroconvulsive therapy actually produces its effects. Nobody has any idea and the interesting thing is that way back as early as the 15th century convulsions were used to get rid of mental diseases because it was thought that one had a mental disease because spirits had gotten into the mind or into the body and so they used various agents, camphor was one of them, to induce convulsions and uh, who knows whether it worked. But Dipping in, people in cold water suddenly was another. Well, that's right, method. as a matter of fact. And, of course, later there was giving people insulin, insulin. to make them yeah. convulse. In the 30s, a group of Italian physicians, neurologists in Rome, realized that their patients who had epilepsy and depression did better after a major convulsion that in their depression would improve. And so they began inducing convulsions and lo and behold, it worked, and that was the beginning of electroshock therapy. Uh, of course, it fell into disrepute for a number of reasons, and then recently has come back as a major, major factor, a element in the treatment of depression.
Thank you very much. Thank you, sir, for the call. Glad to have heard from you. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number, and you are the next caller. Good evening. Hello, are you there? Apparently not, and so we'll go to the next next caller. Good evening. You are on the air. Hi, how are you doing tonight? All right. Well, um, I just had a question regarding cloning and exactly how you ethically back that up. Well, we had an interesting exchange uh, during the last set of commercials. I mentioned Leon Tess, who heads the president's commission on bioethics, and he's quite opposed to cloning, also very much opposed to um, uh, some other medical innovations having to do with stem cell research and the application of that to actual medical practice. You disagree? Well, I disagree. You know, we think in, in rather gross terminology of two different kinds of cloning that we're thinking about in the laboratory, the so-called reproductive cloning, where the attempt is to produce another organism, another human being specifically, and then therapeutic cloning, the point of which is only to create a line of cells that can be used to replace sick cells, inadequate cells, absent cells in certain patients who have diseases where these are the problems. And the scientific community is by and large uh, generally, almost completely, against the notion of reproductive cloning, against the notion of trying to create a human being, but very much in favor, overwhelmingly in favor, and this is true of the general population too, of therapeutic cloning, attempts to clone up to a point where you can take stem cells, cell lines, and use them for the treatment of certain diseases. And that's exactly where I stand. Uh, That ultimately leads in a way, doesn't it, to uh, the equivalent of organ factories? Well, I'm sure one can use that terminology, yes. And what bothers... I'm sorry, ma'am, go ahead. What about uh, the claims that people have cloned humans? What do you think about that? Not much. Oh, that's nonsense. You know, the clonade organization, uh, it's an impossibility. This takes enormous experience, enormous outlay of money, particularly highly sophisticated equipment. If you have this, it's not all that difficult to do, but they don't have this. And the whole uh, thing that you've been seeing on TV is a complete sham. There's no doubt about that. Ma'am, thank you for the call. Um, Something interesting on the email. Just a quick series of questions, says this uh, emailer. I might have missed this earlier in the program, but can Sherwin share with us about how faith has affected his outlook on life? Did he grow up with a strong Jewish faith? Did it persist with him in his later years? If his faith was a major component of his makeup, what role did this play in his role with his father? That's a very important element in your book, and I didn't touch upon it at all. That element is actually spread throughout the book. It's in virtually every paragraph of the book. I grew up, of course, in an Orthodox Jewish home. And you are uh, Isaiah Fremerid. I was a very Isaiah pious. I was a very pious Jew. Um, my mother died when I was 11. I went every day to the synagogue twice a day to say the mm-hmm. prayer for the dead. Uh, I did that when my aunt died. I did that when my grandmother died, and I, of course, became so imbued with this closeness to God and the sense that God controlled everything I did and was such a factor in my life 
that when I became sick, some of my obsessions had to do with God's will and violating God's will and needing to be sure that I did things exactly the way God wanted them to be done. And you know, when I came out of that, I stopped to think for long periods of time about what my faith was, and I realized I had none. I realized that what I had thought was faith was an obsessional belief in some all-powerful being that I could depend on, that I had to fear. And I also realized that belief in anything supernatural was for me personally just a little dangerous because I was worried actually about slipping back into those obsessional thoughts. The product of this is that I simply don't believe in anything supernatural, including an afterlife. Now, you must realize that there is such a thing as the human spirit. I don't think of the human spirit as a supernatural phenomenon. I think of it as something glorious that is within each of us, that makes each of us a better person than we are. So for me personally, I don't have faith in supernatural phenomena, but you know what I have faith in? Not just the human spirit, but belonging to groups, identifying with groups. Do you know that if you were to go to the synagogue in Woodbridge, Connecticut, that I belong to, you would be likely to see me on a Saturday morning, because I identify so strongly, in spite of what went on in earlier years of my life with being Jewish. I love to be in the synagogue. I love to be with people of faith. I have enormous respect for real believers. And I love to pray. I love the sound of it. I love the rhythm of it. I love the spirituality that I feel when I pray, even though, believe it or not, I don't believe there's a God. You pray, but so you send out messages, but you know there's nobody listening. I'm not sending out messages. In fact, what I'm doing is once again being at one with my father, with my family, with my heritage, with 3,800 years of Judaism, and perhaps at one with all people of faith. Remarkably, since I outed myself about this, uh, a number of people in my own synagogue have come up to me and said that they feel exactly the yeah. same way. I haven't gone as far as you have. Uh, that is, I'm not a regular, um, a regular, attending Jew at any synagogue. But after the death of my parents, and they died only a few years apart, I found it inevitable that on Yom Kippur, I would go to the synagogue, and uh, particularly to be there for the Kol Nidre. Well. As we were discussing during one of the breaks, the identification with religion or an ethnic group comes largely through one's identification with one's father. Yeah. So, so in expressing religious beliefs, many of us are really expressing solidarity with our roots, with who we are and who we spring from. But I was raised without much participation in active Judaic practice. My parents were very much uh, Jewish, and my father particularly had a full Orthodox background and knew the whole... Could daven as well as anybody, but he only did it once or twice a year. He was essentially a secularized Jew, a businessman, and sort of an active Zionist, but not uh, particularly Judaic in in daily practice. Well, what has always interested me since my teens, when I became involved in in the socialist manifestations mm -hmm. of Jewishness, where they 
cast out religion and believe in tradition is that they invent traditional forms that are exact copies of the religious forms. And I think Jews have been brought up in anything like that when they lose a parent and they need that parent and they need that connection will sometimes either do precisely what you do or go even further. Yeah. Um, there's so much we could talk about. I'm just remembering what you have to say about the Friday night routines at Camp Beipoik, which was well, very much yes. a secular Jewish <laughs> socialist camp. Right. But they imitate the Friday night service. In a I, I, worked, I worked at the age of 19 at, at this um, Shalom Aleichem camp. You know, Shalom Aleichem is the fellow who wrote Fiddler on the Roof. And great short story. No, writer. he didn't. He wrote Tevye the Milkman. Right, he wrote Tevye the Milkman. Exactly, <laughs> Tevye the Milkman. And these were socialist Jews who believed in no religious faith. And on Friday night, interestingly enough, we would put on our white white clothes, shower, sing uh, secular hymns. And of course, what we were doing, we were aping the Friday night Sabbath service. Some commercials are overdue. We pause for those and then directly back to the phones and to the email. For phone calls, 591-7200. For email, extension 720 at tribune.com. And we return to Sherwin uh, Newland, author of Lost in America, A Journey with My Father. Alfred A. Knopf, the publishers. I must read this email to you. On the date of your father's death, or the day of his birth, for that matter, do you wish for inconsolable grief? Do you wish for grief? I'm a second-generation Jew, but also grew up on a half-Jewish, half-Irish Catholic block. Substitute your father's syphilis with my father's drinking, and our experiences are very similar. Every year on my father's birthday, or the date of his death, I have often prayed for such grief, though I'm, overly, uh, though I'm an overly emotional person, Anyway, I do this because it would be better than the nothing that I feel. A man who wants grief but can't manage it. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, you know, I find myself wondering, and certainly this is no diagnosis because how can I possibly know? I find myself wondering whether you feel, as I have, guilt over your feelings towards your father, and this is your way of expiating or treating your own guilt, that if you could feel sorrow, if you could suffer during that time, it would take some of the burden of this sense of guilt away from you, that you feel so badly that you can't bring yourself to feel anything for him, that you, that you seek this out and need it. I think you better stop punishing yourself this is this is the way it's going to be. Our relationship with our fathers, dead or alive, is such an enormous bag of complexity. You think I've solved it by writing this book? Maybe somewhat. But as I say in the very last sentence of this book, there is no end to it. There will be no end to it for you, no end to it for me. What we need is to try to understand who these people are and to understand what we have become, so much of it, because of them. You really feel that our relations with our fathers and in memory, as well as in real life, are more loaded with complexity than our relationships with our mothers? I do think so. I think we are much more emotionally close to our mothers. I think we understand our mothers better whether we're male or female, mothers are more forthcoming in the reality of what they are. Perhaps it comes 
from biological matters. Perhaps it comes from them being so much physically with us all of the time. Father comes in from outside. He arrives home at <clears throat> 6 o'clock, and, and he's got a heavy beard. He's not soft. He's hard. He's from another place. Uh, our psychoanalytic friends tell us we think we've got to protect mother against father. So it's a very much more complex relationship. But there's been a great change in American uh, life, at least middle class life, uh, with the coming of militant feminism and with the rush into professional life on the part of women who are mothers. And uh, there's a new kind of family pattern in which the kid is essentially raised by surrogates or sent or shipped off at the age of two or three to day schools, to play schools, and so on, and just doesn't get the full feel of a mother. Well, I think I think one's emotional life is deprived when something like this happens, regardless of how good the surrogates are and what they can provide. It remains a very different thing than the primary relationship with a mother or with a father. But I would suggest that maybe we're going to see more. We are now seeing more ambivalence towards mothers than we used to see. We're not only seeing more ambivalence, oh, toward mothers. I think, no, I think it's more that we've learned that we can express these things. I think people didn't talk very much about it. I think it's okay now to talk about Well, that's the triumph of the therapeutic, of course. We now let it all hang out all the time. One might say it's therapeutic. One might say it's the zeitgeist. I don't, th it's I don't think it really is therapeutic. That's the title of a book by um, um, a sociologist who uh, really viewed Freudianism as having brought a new burden into social existence, <laughs> the triumph of the pseudo-therapeutic. Oh, God, yes. If uh, Freud, uh, I think Freud, uh, Jesus, all of the great thinkers of the West would be shocked at what people have done with their notions of what humanity is all about. <laughs> We go back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello, Mills. Hello, Sherwin. Hi. Hi. I just wanted to ask you to uh, switch gears for a second. Uh, the more pra pragmatic side of medicine at this point. Um, I guess I'm concerned about the fact that our our population is aging at such an exponential rate, and uh, the fact that um, there's going to be so few specialists and caregivers for the number of elderly that will be around. And then also your feelings on the fact of liability insurance and insurance companies cutting doctors payments so much that actually most of the very talented physicians are leaving to do other things. Well, you've put your finger on some very, very difficult problems. You know, the frequency of getting a young person uh, out of medical school or out of training to go, in, to go into gerontology is very low compared to the frequency of getting that same person to go into cardiology for example, we're faced with precisely what you're describing, which is an aging population with no one to take care of them. Worse yet, think of the social services that we don't have in this country. Uh, without going into great detail and without revealing my politics, I want to tell you that the only answer to our medical dilemma, especially about aging, is universal health insurance, and it's bound to come. Kicking and screaming the AMA may be, it's bound to come. Sure. What were the large carriers doing, the people that actually pay for all of our services? I own a physical therapy company, and I, I can see all of my, a lot of my referring physicians turning to more of a business approach because they're forced to do that, and, and that leaves the service side and the caregiving side um, a little bit um, limited in terms of their abilities 
to, to put their time and efforts into their patients. Now they're putting their time and effort into the business aspect of treating patients. Well, not only that, but you see, if this becomes a more even more predominant factor, you're going to find different people going to medical school than the current group. You're going to find people going to medical school to whom this kind of life has some appeal. I don't think you're going to want too many of these people to be caring for you when you're old and tired. Sure, sure. So your point, your point would be to have a specialist would be um, the specialists that are going to be trained, um, they're going to be looking forward to a life that may be not quite as lucrative or in terms of their ability to even handle the patient loads because of the, the number of patients we're going to have in the system? Uh, well, I'd like to take the financial factor out of uh, young people's determination of what specialty they will go into. Oh, you, sure. You have to, <laughs> if you, you have to realize that a cardiac surgeon, for example, has an income five, six, seven times as much as a pediatrician. Now, the most dedicated of young people will have to think twice when he graduates from medical school with a sixty or $80,000 debt. And what I'd like to see is, is a normalization and an equalization and an equivalization of these kinds of salaries, which a universal health system, of course, would provide. That's right. one of the reasons. Sarah, I fear we must rush away for some commercials. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much for the call. Thank you, Doctor. And we'll be directly back after this. And... I hereby predict and or announce that though we, though we can't put every program up on the audio archive, the one you're hearing tonight will go on our audio archive and will be up within the week. I might also quickly mention that if you go to our website, wgnradio.com, and then click on my name to get to the program subsite, you'll find not only the audio archive, but our daily file, which has in it uh, items gleaned from the Internet, from the international press, from in leading... Uh, popular journals and scientific journals and always as well a musical uh, link as the last of some six or seven. Today's musical link is a wonderful Louis Armstrong site put up by the Smithsonian Institution. West End Blues is to be found in the five or six items there. Also we've got an item called from the British press about Jacques Chirac, Le Grand Jacques, who isn't quite the same as Le Grand Charles. Uh, and a number of other interesting items, uh, which I think you will enjoy and find um, more or less uh, illuminating. Five nine one seven two double zero. As we go back to the phones, hello, you're on the air. Thank you. I, I'll just ask a quick question and hang up and listen. I thought because of your father's um, tertiary syphilis plus your role as a medical historian, that you would be the per perfect person to um, speak a little bit about the pre-penicillin, uh, or not remedy, but um, uh, amelioration or whatever you'd want to call it, uh, malariotherapy for, for tertiary syphilis, and if it actually worked at all. And um, I'll, I'll just hang up and listen. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah, well, you know, over the centuries, there have been, since 1493, when syphilis first appeared, there have been a number of attempted therapies. One was mercury, which was supposed to have worked uh, reasonably well, but it didn't really work even reasonably well. And then there was so-called salversan. That, that was Dr. Uh, Ehrlich's Dr. magic bullet. Exactly, Dr. Ehrlich. And then there was the notion that you're pointing out a fever therapy where it was thought that if you could raise the temperature very high within a person's body, it would destroy these germs called spirochetes. And no one really knows because there was never any careful, appropriate study of how it worked, but my father actually did have this kind of therapy. 
And uh, who knows whether that was what destroyed the active organisms that he had, but he had one major attempt. He may have had several others. It was done uh, shortly after the diagnosis was made. Without his knowing what he was being treated for. Exactly. Yeah. Was that good medical policy? Always very common. Even when I was a student, yeah. people with uh, serious diseases like cancers were frequently not told. Yeah. Would you do it? I've never believed that makes any sense, and there are a lot of reasons for it, one of which is that I would not. I find it demeaning. Who am I to, mm. to keep from you the knowledge that you have a disease that will carry you off? You've got a passage in this book. Um, I wanted you to read it, but now time is short, and it's too long. Uh, but uh, it's about the cold and condescending treatment that your father got when you went with him once. And he got it many times in the clinics that he had to go to. Yes, my father had clinic care. Uh, the doctors were arrogant. The secretaries were arrogant. And as I sat on those benches with him, heard his name shouted out and have a secretary mm -hmm. say to him, Noodleman, go in that room and take your clothes off till the doctor comes. I decided even then as a teenager that if I were ever going to become a doctor, I would never, ever behave that way toward people. And I've actually dedicated my life and my practice to being the opposite of what those doctors were. I'm sure you're a very welcome, uh, it, it, one feels very welcome when one goes to you as a physician or when one did go to you. But has that level of impersonalism uh, and, uh, and condescension uh, altered much when it comes to general hospital practice? I think we're getting better. I think in the last 10 or 15 years there have been increasing programs in medical schools throughout the country to bring back to these idealistic kids their idealism. Kids start off very idealistic and we, we leech it out of them over the four years we have them and the five years of training. And there are now departments, there are individuals, there are sections of medical humanities, medical ethics, bringing these young people back to the realization of the shared humanity of all of us, the healthy, the sick, the doctors. From my own encounters, um, and I'm um, an observer sometimes in some of the hospitals around town, quite apart from my seeking medical service, uh, it seems to me that uh, there's um, an awful lot more talk about this sort of thing than, in fact, is translated into practice. Well, I, th I think certainly that's true, but there is a small change already making itself evident, and I think as the young people get into their 30s and 40s, we're going to see a great improvement over the next decade. A last quick question or comment. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi, my name is Angie Ingram, and I'm a medical student, actually, and I had a comment um, regarding a comment that your guest had made. <laughs> Um, saying that a cardiac surgeon earns a significant amount more than a pediatrician, which is true, but being a devil's advocate, the cardiac surgeon has undergone more extensive training than the pediatrician, and thus I believe that they may deserve um, somewhat of a better um, income, not necessarily five to six times that, but they have gone through more training than a, than a pediatrician or um, other physician may have gone through. Well, there are so many factors in deciding what a man's or a woman's services are worth, and some of them simply have to do with how much good you do an individual person. And when you say an individual person, you don't just mean his coronary arteries, but you mean his views on life and his entire spirit. So some people might disagree with you, but there can be a differential in income, but as you point out, five times is pretty horrific. 
We are almost out of time, just about a minute left. Pardon me for doing this to you, but you're a wise man and you've thought deeply and you've experienced deeply. So what do you come out with? What, after all, is the meaning of this thing or the purpose of it all? There is no meaning. I think life has no meaning. We make meaning. We, do, we find our own meaning. We try to understand ourselves, to understand others. The older I get, the more I'm convinced that that's the word, understanding. Trying to leave room in one's mind and one's heart for other people's perception. And then this extraordinary thing with which I start the book, it's not extraordinary because I choose it to start the book, but because it's a piece of ancient philosophy that goes back to the second century by Philo of Alexandria. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Mm, lovely. Um, and I was very impressed by that epigraph. I'd never encountered it before. Uh, and it's a good note on which to end. We are all engaged in a great battle, and so let's try to be kind to one another. Uh, our guest has been Sherwin B. Newland, his most recent book, and the basis for our conversation tonight is Lost in America, a journal, I beg your pardon, a journey with my father. It's also a journal of a life. That's right. His life and yours with him. Published by Alfred A. Knopf and Company. Uh, tomorrow night, a true change of pace, we'll meet with Jim Matea, an old friend, the automotive writer for the Chicago Tribune, and at least one other guest, and we'll talk about the new cars. On uh, Thursday night, we do our quarterly review of the recent books with our usual book reviewers. That's what's coming up tonight. It's time to get out of the way with thanks to all for listening and a cordial good night.